Welcome to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters. I'm Michonne Boston. And I'm Tequina Boston. We're your hosts and real-life sisters who geek out on historical drama. We'll talk about films, fictional adaptations, and dramatic series as windows to the past and mirrors of the present. So fill your teacup or mug with your favorite sip as we explore what's fact, what's fiction, and the so what on historical drama with the Boston Sisters. I'm Michelle in Boston. And I'm Tequina Boston. Welcome to the podcast. We invite you to share the historical drama with the Boston Sisters on your social media. Visit our website, michonbostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters to listen to past episodes and for bonus content. In this episode of Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters, we look back on The Godfather 50 years later with best-selling author and investigative journalist Dan Moldea. The Godfather was nominated for 11 Academy Awards, winning for Best Picture, Best Actor for Marlon Brando, and Best Adapted Screenplay by Mario Puzo and Francis Ford Coppola. Based on a 1969 crime novel by Mario Puzo, The Godfather made its world premiere at the Lowe's State Theater in New York City in March 1972. Directed by Francis Ford Coppola, The Godfather is frequently described as one of the greatest films of all time. It is also the most widely quoted, imitated, and spoofed. The 1972 film is set in the late 1940s in New York. Marlon Brando and Al Pacino star as Vito Corleone and his youngest son, Michael. Corleone is in organized crime jargon, a godfather, or Don, the head of a mafia family. Michael, a free thinker who defied his father, by enlisting in the Marines to fight in World War II, has returned a captain and a war hero. Having long ago rejected the family business, Michael is reluctantly pulled in and becomes involved in the inevitable cycle of violence and betrayal. The Godfather also stars James Kahn as Michael's older brother, Sonny, or Santino, John Cazale as the middle son, Fredo, Talia Shire as their sister Connie, Diane Keaton as Michael's girlfriend Kay, Robert Duvall as Tom Hagen, the Coleon family's consigliere or legal advisor, Johnny Rousseau as the ill-fated brother-in-law Carlo, and many more noteworthy performances. We're talking with Dan Moldea about what is fiction and what is nonfiction in the world of The Godfather and organized crime. How The Godfather flipped the mobster film genre by making it a story about the relationships within an Italian-American crime family and where we can find the cultural influences of The Godfather from the mean streets to the boardrooms and politics today. Dan Muldea has been a specialist on investigations of organized crime and political corruption since 1974. He is the author of 10 books, including The Hoffa Wars, Teamsters, Rebels, Politicians, and the Mob, Dark Victory, Ronald Reagan, MCA, and the Mob, 
Interference, How Organized Crime Influences Professional Football, The Killing of Robert F. Kennedy, An Investigation of Motive, Means, and Opportunity, Hollywood Confidential, A True Story of Wiretapping, Friendship, and Betrayal. And in 2020, Moldea published the third edition of his memoir, Confessions of a Guerrilla Writer, Adventures in the Jungles of Crime, Politics, and Journalism. Dan, welcome to Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters. It's so good to see you. Ladies, a pleasure. Thank you. Honor to be here. So we've had a lot of conversations before today. And in one of those conversations, um, you mentioned you were in college when The Godfather premiered, and it was the first movie you reviewed for a newspaper or news newsletter, whatever a, the publication. I had a newsletter at college, uh, and, and um, that was campus wide. And uh, uh, my girlfriend and I went to go see two movies. We went to see The Godfather. We went to go see Cabaret, and um, we um, I wrote reviews of both. But The Godfather. I focused on um, the weddings and the funerals. The mafia knows how to throw great weddings or great funerals, but I really didn't know very much about the mafia at that time. And what I knew was pretty much what I had seen in The Untouchables, which was an old television series starring uh, Robert Stack as Elliot Ness, and, um, and in, in movies that I would see, James Cagney movies and Humphrey Bogart movies and things like that. So I, um, I, uh, I wrote a, a, probably a fairly naive review. I was trying to find it, but I couldn't. But uh, I'm sure it was, it was, uh, it was uh, as, again, fairly naive, a fairly naive look at organized crime. And how has that perspective changed over the years, especially? Well, I, got, I got dragged into this kicking, kicking and screaming. I was a uh, graduate student at Kent State University in 1973, 74, 75. And um, I was assistant director of a federal poverty agency uh, under the Office of Economic Opportunity. Um, Nixon was president at the time, so this wasn't exactly, you know, this was, this was the Republicans trying to dismantle the federal poverty program. And um, so we were fighting to try to keep the agency alive. And one night we were going through the books and I caught my boss embezzling money uh, from the poverty agency of all places. He had been kind of desperate and he, um, he, uh, he had a bar on the side. He was not uh, able to keep up with it. It was during the 74 recession. And so he stole money from the agency, borrowed money, what he, what he would say. Um, and in order to borrow the money, he had to go to a, a mafia loan shark. And once again, I was pretty naive back then. I thought Elliot Ness and the Untouchables had cleaned up the mob back in the 30s. I didn't think they existed. And so seeing that they did and seeing that I was getting threatened in the midst of all of this, because I went to the prosecutor when my boss fired me, when I confronted him with the evidence and he fired me. And then I went across the street to the prosecutor's office and I told him the story and gave him a timeline. Um, I got threatened in the midst of this. There was a lot of attention, local attention to this. And, um, and I was out of a job. And so a, um, a, a very fine gentleman named Bill Ellis, Mr. Ellis, he was, uh, 
he was a junior attorney for the NAACP's uh, Brown versus Board of Education case. And he had a little newspaper in my hometown, Akron, Ohio, called The Reporter, which serviced the Black community in Northeastern Ohio. And I had some friends who were on, from school and from the days of student politics and everything. I was student body president at the University of Akron earlier. And from the friends I had from Black United students and from student government general from the activist movement, I was offered uh, a column. I was offered by Mr. Ellis to be his token white columnist, as he called me, uh, to write about anything I, you know, I wanted to write about. So I started writing about organized crime in December 1974. And I started writing about the Teamsters and their corrupt pension fund and the mafia. And so about eight months later, uh, while I was, after I'd done an eight part series and then cooperated with the Wall Street Journal on a three part series they did, which came out on July 22nd, 23rd and 24th, one week after the series came out that was written by John Quitney, a very fine investigative journalist for the Wall Street Journal who ended up becoming kind of a big brother to me, Jimmy Hoffa disappeared, the president of the Teamsters Union. And so I hit the ground running. Uh, John and I at the Wall Street Journal, uh, we did some crazy, you know, search for Hoff up in Eagle River, Wisconsin, which was a real adventure. I got bit by a dog and got held at gunpoint into the lodge and everything else. I'm, I'm a kid at this time, 1975, I'm 25 years old. What do I know? Nothing. And so I, um, and then I went, and then uh, John went back to take the grief he was going to take from the people at the Wall Street Journal um, <clears throat> uh, newsroom. And then I went to Detroit where I met, I went to the Red Fox restaurant where Hoffa was last seen. And I met Irving R. Levine, who was a legendary labor and economics reporter for the Wall Street, for the NBC News. And uh, he hired me on the spot after getting a glowing reference from John at the journal. And, um, and so I started working on the, on the, on Hoff and the Teamsters, uh, again, hit the ground running from day one. And ever since, for the past 47 years, I've sort of been Ahab and the Hoffa case has been my white whale. And in the midst of all of this, I've met a lot of gangsters and a lot of thugs and a lot of killers and, and hitmen and uh, generally some pretty bad guys. And I don't do, um, as a as professionally, I don't do foreign intrigue or psycho killers or disorganized crime. I, I focus on, you know, organized crime, the, the real thing. And I do this as an independent journalist. I've been alone doing this now for 48 years. And it's a stupid way to make a living, I agree. Uh, but I, um, I feel like I'm making a difference in what I'm doing. In my 10 books, I think I've made a difference. And, uh, and, and, and I have to say that, that movies like The Godfather and, and Goodfellas and Casino and, um, and others that have been, you know, well done films that have been done uh, have sort of augmented, you know, a lot of what I have seen and, and done. And um, even though a lot of these movies are fictionalized, um, I still find um, I still find them important enough to you know to view and and to see. I mean, as an investigative journalist, I spent my time in the street, you know, getting my head beat in sometimes, and um, and and I, I I sometimes I'm in awe of these fiction writers, these novelists who sit in the comfort of their home and just make things up, and then try to pass it off as nonfiction, 
And then when the lawsuits start, uh, they say, hey, hey, I'm, I've written a novel. I've written fiction. I, you know, it's not, uh, you know, I'm not, don't hold me to what I write because I, I, all I'm doing is making it up. But I, I find that if you're going to, you're going to tell a true story, um, you know, write nonfiction. I, I was in an argument one time with, uh, in, a, in a writer's conference with Tom Clancy, just as he was becoming famous. And uh, he had just published The Hunt for Red October. And he said that the Hunt for Red October, it was this, the panel discussion, the, the theme of the panel was fiction writers versus nonfiction writers. And uh, I was, I, I had given him my spiel, just like I gave you about fiction writers sitting in the comfort of their homes, making things up. And he came back on me angrily and said, you know, my book was basically based on a true story. I got the information out of the Freedom Information Act. And I said, your story was a real story? The submarine story has a real story? He said, yeah. I, I said, then why don't you write nonfiction? If it's a true story, why don't you write nonfiction? Then he, he sort of hesitated. I said, I'll tell you why. It's because you couldn't get everything you needed to tell that story. So you just had to make it up. And that's what you did. You just made a brilliant book, wonderful book. A lot of people get a lot of pleasure out of it, I'm sure. But don't try to sell this thing as being nonfiction. And so... Um, you know, again, all of these things have their have their place. I'm sorry, I'm going on here, but uh, this is something that gets my blood boiling. Yeah. Well, one thing you can't deny, and coming back to The Godfather, is the impact it had on the culture. That's fact. As a film. Um, what impact do you see um, in terms of the film on the culture of either organized crime or disorganized crime or society in general? Um, it was funny because... Um, you know, I'm, although a liberal, I'm a big supporter of wiretapping, court authorized wiretapping. And uh, because I think people lie, tapes don't. And these criminals, I mean, I, I hate the mafia. I, I think the mafia has been corrupting this country for the past 100 years. But at the same time, even though I hate the mafia, I have to respect the mafia because of the incredible power that they wield in so many institutions in America. And so, I mean, they view me as an insect crawling on the floor, I'm sure. Um, but I, um, I find that, that um, I find that mafia guys are not no longer knuckle dragging eighth grade dropouts. These guys have become very, very sophisticated. They've gone um, high tech, they've gone online, they've gone offshore. And some of these guys are Wharton grads and Harvard, have Harvard MBAs in Detroit, for example. They, call, they don't call it the Detroit Mafia, they call it the Detroit Partnership. It's a partnership of very well-educated uh, Italian gentlemen who happen to engage in lives of crime. And, and of course they do have the knuckle draggers who do the dirty work for them. Um, it's interesting that when you see these federal investigations uh, and the wiretaps come out that always accompany these investigations, um, the FBI will release these wiretaps and it's almost hilarious how they will refer to movies like The Godfather, especially The Godfather, how they will mimic um, uh, portions of the godfather for instance i've heard more than once 
about uh, on, a, on a real life wiretap where somebody's talking about making somebody a deal they can't refuse. Um, or keep your friends close or keep your enemies closer. Uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's, it's uh, life imitates art in, in that. So I think it has had a real impact. Um, Joe Colombo uh, was a, um, uh, was, was the, was the head of the Colombo crime family. He was, uh, he was supporting an, uh, an Italian anti, stop calling us mafia guys. Um, uh, yeah, the American Civil Rights League, Italian American Civil Thank Rights you. League. Yes, that's exactly what it was. Yes. And he, um, he was shot. He was shot at, at Columbus Circle over by Lincoln Center on the west side of New York um, uh, at, at one of these rallies. He was shot by a black guy. Um, you know, that was, it was unheard of where um, black guys would be recruited by mafia guys to do things. But there was a renegade in the uh, mafia at the time named Joey Gallo, who had problems with the establishment, you know, the five families in New York, the, uh, the uh, Bonanno family, the Colombo family, uh, the Lucchese family, the Gambino family, and the Genovese family. Um, and he, he hired uh, non-Italians, Joey Gallo hired non-Italians to do his dirty work. Uh, and so um, it was interesting. Joe Colombo wasn't killed that day. He, he lived for, for a few years after that. He was, he was in bad shape, but he, he lived for a few years after that. But it's always thought that he was killed that day. He wasn't. Um, yeah. Well, Dan, um, one of the things about film in terms of its impact is it can shape how we see ourselves. It also can shape how other communities view um, the communities we come from. And certainly that's been a big conversation in many of the films about uh, people who are identified as African-American. Um, and we spoke about how Joe Colombo uh, with the Italian American Civil Rights League was really concerned about the image of Italian Americans that might be potentially negative in the film, The Godfather. Um, are there ways that you see that the Godfather film influenced Italian American identity and perceptions of Italian Americans? Um, do you think it helped or hurt how Italian Americans are represented in film? I, you know, I'm I'm Romanian on all sides of my family, but my my uncle, who is a Romanian, my mother's brother, uh, he married a Sicilian woman, and so we had Sicilians in our family. And um, um, they were they were interesting to say the least. Uh, and I found them embracing the um, the um, the um, the badass um, image that went along with being connected to the mafia. Um, like I said, I, I hate the mafia. I don't have friends who are mafia guys, but I do know a few people whom I respect, particularly if they cooperate with me and give me information, then I respect them. I like them and I respect them. Uh, when a person flips from the underworld, I don't call guys like that canaries and, and pigeons and things like that. I call them heroes. 
because they're flipping from the underworld to testify against people, even if they're trying to save their own bacon. Uh, they're flipping from the underworld to testify against people who are far more dangerous. There was a mafia guy or a, a, a guy who worked for the mafia. He was the biggest bookmaker in the United States for a while. His name was Bill Jehoda out of Chicago. And I got to know Bill pretty well. He wanted me to write his book. He was in the WITSEC program, the Federal Witness Protection Program. And um, he uh, would tell me stories about things, blowing me away with the stories that he would tell about uh, his ep gambling and then the violence that went along with it, of course. And he, um, and he just couldn't take it anymore. There were two friends of his who were murdered and he wound up being the unwitting setup guy in both of them. And he was furious about it. And so he went to the federal government and he said, I want to do the right thing now. Um, I'm coming to you not asking for a deal. Uh, you judge me by what I do for you. And he said, what do you want us to do? And he said, wire me up and send me back in, coach. And so that's what they did. They wired him up, sent him back into the game. And for the next six months, he memorialized all these conversations with mob guys and corrupt politicians and everything else. And it was really remarkable uh, situation. So then he, this guy had, he asked for no deal. He, 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 he was out there, you know, and, and he was not charged. There was nothing pending against him. He went there out of conscience and he, um, he was the key witness at the federal grand jury. He, his, his testimony had got 21 major mafia guys indicted. His testimony at the trial, one of the longest federal criminal trials in Chicago history, uh, got 20 of them convicted. The 21st guy died of a heart attack prior to the trial. And, um, you know, to me, that's a hero. That's a hero who, who does something like that. Not a pigeon, not a canary, uh, not a stoolie. Uh, and so I respect people who, who do things like that. So there's, there's the image of the mafia. And then there are the heroes who aren't celebrated, like, you know, some of these characters who are romanticized uh, by the mob, uh, by, by, their, by their, you know, their badass image. And so um, I have, I'm troubled with that. I'm troubled with that romanticization. And I think that The Godfather, with all due respect to how wonderful of a film it was, that there was a lot of that romanticization there. But at the same time, there were all these threads, these multiple threads of the film with different characters and different scenes going on, whether it was Carlo and, and, and the sister, Talia Shire, and, and their relationship, their turbulent relationship, their violent relationship, whether it was, um, uh, you know, Barzini and Tatalia and the, 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 the masking that was going on where everyone thought it was Tatalia at first, and it turns out that it's Barzini who's behind everything. And, um, uh, you know, Fredo, you know, the, the, the hapless uh, brother who was passed over uh, from so after Sonny was murdered uh, to Michael, the younger son, who, you know, uh, turned out to be a, a genius, you know, uh, crime lord. And so um, all of these, these, these things, which all came together at, and then all came together at the end uh, of the film when, um, when, um, when Michael tells Carlo, when he's confronting Carlo with his, his, his treachery, where he was, a, he was the man who essentially set up Sonny to be murdered. 
and he confronts, and this is where Michael gets his revenge. And he says to him, Barzini is dead. So is Philip Tatalia, Mo Green, Stracci, Cuneo. Today I settled all family business. I mean, that's that sums up what that whole movie was up was all about. And I got to know Carlo, the guy who played Carlo. His name was Gianni Rousseau. And I got to know him uh, a little bit. He called me and he asked me to, he wanted me to write his, he, he was interested in having me write his book. And so we met at Mickey Mantle's restaurant over by Central Park in, up in Manhattan. And uh, we had lunch. I, 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 it's not the kind of book I would write. Uh, and so, uh, but I enjoyed the guy. He was, a, he was a funny guy. He was an interesting guy. And he told me a couple of great stories about his, um, his, his, his portrayal of Carlo and his relationship with the other cast members in The Godfather. My favorite story that he told me was, he said that uh, he was a novice actor. I mean, he had, virtually had no experience. And it was a young cast. And here's Marlon Brando, you know, the great actor, the great Oscar winning actor sitting there. And they're having an initial cast meeting and people are going around introducing themselves. And when Johnny Rousseau gets up to introduce himself, he makes it clear he doesn't know anything about acting. He has, you know, he has no experience or anything. And Brando in front of everybody really came. He says, this is, a, this is an insult to me. I'm a professional actor. Uh, and I uh, am, you know, I, 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 I feel uncomfortable dealing with these amateurs over here. And he, he railed and embarrassed Johnny Rousseau, who later on took Brando by the shoulder and took, and, and Johnny Rousseau is connected. Uh, he took him over to the corner and he told Marlon Brando, he said, if you ever talk to me like that again, you show me any disrespect, I will have your head blown off. And Brando's response, horrified, his response was, that's the kind of intensity that I want. That's what I'm looking for from you as an actor. <laughs> so he got a and class right there. Very well after that, after, after uh, Johnny uh, demanded respect from uh, Marlon Brando, he got it. Right now, I'm uh, I'm involved in, in an investigation of Jimmy finding Jimmy Hoffa's body. I've been doing this for since um, I, I've, I got a source who says his father buried Hoffa's body. And there's, you know, I, I I allow myself every few years, if the timeline's right, the cast of characters is right, I will, you know, spend a few thousand dollars in a couple of weeks to run these things down. This was the greatest thing I have ever seen or heard in my. 47 years of investigating this 47 year murder. And um, again, I was on this thing from day one. Um, and it was, and, and the, the lead, the information was consistent with what the FBI had come up with when they flipped a federal witness in November, 1975, where, the, where he claimed that the body was at this garbage dump in Jersey City, New Jersey, under the Pulaski Skyway, which connected Jersey City with Newark 
and it was 600 miles away from Detroit where Hoffa was murdered. In other words, they murdered him in Detroit, stuffed him into a 55-gallon drum, loaded him onto a gateway transportation truck and shipped him to Jersey, where this witness, a guy named Ralph Picardo, speculated that Hoffa was buried at this dump. So uh, the person I was, uh, the mafia guy who owned the dump, I had spent uh, seven years interviewing him from 2007 to 2014. And, you know, um, you know, I got, I respected the guy. I, I, as much as I could like a mafia guy, I liked and respected him. Um, he was giving me information with the frequency that a kosher butcher sells pork chops, but he did give me, you know, basically really, he told me in act one, Hoffa was picked up by Vito Giacalone. That was not known that he was murdered in act two by Sal Bergoglio, which I had written about in my 1978 book about the case. I've always believed that Sal Bergoglio did the murder. In fact, I'm the only person who's interviewed him before he was murdered. So that interview is now exclusive. In fact, I interviewed him four times. Um, and also that, um, um, that, that his body, once again, he speculated he was in his dump. The, the, the mafia guy who owned the dump told me during my seven years of interviews with him that the body was at his dump, at the, at the dump. But it was clear he didn't know where. Then his partner's son reached out to me and he knew the story. So we, you know, uh, we, we did our, you know, I did seven, I did seven interviews with him in September of, of 2019, September of, uh, of 2019. And then I, um, and then I, I met, we met on September 28th, uh, 2019 with his girlfriend. I took them to dinner in Secaucus, New Jersey. And then he said, I'm going to go to the dump tomorrow. I've been there in a while. And I said, Hey, you're taking me with you, man. And he said, you want to go? And I said, well, that's what I'm here for. So this guy's, uh, this guy has a criminal background. And so he picked me up at my hotel. We went, drove to Jersey city, went to the dump and he showed me this alcove under the Pulaski skyway. It was about the size of a little league baseball field. And Hoffa was buried in this in this in this dump area, and then later on, um, I um, I invited um, the, the only game in town on the Hoffa case with regard to media was Fox News. I'm no fan of Fox News, but I had a friend there named Eric Sean, and I invited Eric to accompany for me to for my return to the site after Frank died in March of 2020. And uh, because we wanted to do a ground penetrating radar survey of the area, because Frank in his, I had asked Frank to execute a sworn statement, uh, give me the details of how his father, um, how and why his father buried Jimmy Hoffa. And he said that his father had, had put Hoffa in a eight to 15 foot hole um, in, a, in, a, in a steel drum that he put 15 to 30 uh, steel barrels on top of them that were filled with uh, toxic waste, chemicals, uh, adhesives. And that, um, and we were looking, we were gonna use the ground penetrating radar to 
locate what I thought was not just a barrel at the bottom of the hole. We were looking for a sheet of steel. We're looking at a 15 to 30 steel drums on, and we detected it. We got a, we got a detection on it. And I had been, the, the FBI had asked for my, unfortunately, while Frank was alive, the FBI never contacted us. But after he died, and after I started writing about this, and then I wrote, I wrote a story about what do I got to do to get a search warrant here? Um, I was contacted by the FBI and I was in a use it or lose it situation. So I cooperated fully and this is it for me. I mean, this is the ball game for me. If I, if I win, I'm one of the gods of journalism. If I lose, I'm a lot of people are going to dance on my head. Um, and so, uh, we're waiting right now for the, the FBI executed a search warrant, uh, last a court authorized, they got, they got a, a search warrant authorized by the court in federal court in New Jersey. Um, and they did a search for core samples, soil samples, content samples. I don't know. I do not believe they dug anything up, um, but they, um, but everything's at the crime lab right now. We're waiting. This is like months later. Uh, and we're waiting right now for the result. I would assume if they found nothing that this, this would be over by now, but because this is taking so long, and I know that it's a dangerous thing to go back and dig because of the toxic chemicals and the drums that if you crack that ground, uh, there could be an explosion or there could be a plume of toxic chemicals coming out of the ground and there's a bridge right overhead. People could get hurt. So the FBI, of course, wants to be very, very responsible on this. And really this, this not only vindicates me as Ahab, but this also vindicates the FBI because I piggybacked on the FBI's inf information. It was the FBI that flipped Ralph Picardo, the guy who said Hoffa's body was at the dump. Uh, it was the FBI that got a search warrant for the dump back in December 11th, 1975. This is the first place they really thought the body was. So this is a vindication of what their original story was. I just brought the story back to life after I interviewed, you know, the guy, the mafia guy who was the co-owner of the dump. And so, uh, I mean, <laughs> that was no small task, believe me. But um, um, it's, um, that's where I'm kind of at in this, in this situation. But now I'm waiting to, to see the den of wall here. I'm hoping I'm invited to the dig if they decide to dig. And I'm not getting, when I, I finally, when I was 25 years old investigating this case in 1975, the FBI guys were taking me to lunch and, you know, giving me information. These guys, these days, some of these guys weren't even born when Hoffa disappeared 47 years ago. I mean, I was walking, or the others who are a little older, while I was crawling on my hands and knees through the mud and everything, you know, these guys were reading about this stuff in their weekly readers. And so I am, you know, I... Um, you know, I'm, I'm finding it as a different world where these guys really don't give me much information at all. I mean, I got to drag it out of uh, the few people who will talk to me. And but these, uh, to, to their to their to their uh, credit, I mean, these are men, people of integrity. These are men and women of integrity who work for the FBI, and I, I couldn't have more respect for them than I do. Again, this if if I'm right about what I did, this is a huge victory uh, for the FBI. Yeah. And it's also a, a big story for you as oh, an investigative yeah. journalist. And I have to say, Dan, um, your career proves that truth can be stranger than fiction. <laughs> um, and yet at the same time, even you said that there are ways that art imitates um, or life imitates art. 
and also the romanticization of some parts of life that really aren't that romantic or pretty. Um, And one of the things in The Godfather is you see the connection between the organized crime world, politicians, judges, police, also uh, so-called legitimate businesses, are um, there ways that that world that now we're seeing in films like even, not films, but dramatic series like Empire and Succession, um, how is the current business, politics, uh, kind of mirroring that world that was that we first got a peek at through the film, The Godfather? Um, I'm not familiar with those series that you talked about. I, I, I've heard of them, but I've never watched them. Um, the movies like Goodfellas, um, um, it's interesting the way these, these sort of came about. Goodfellas, uh, was written by a, a, a very fine uh, writer named Nick Pileggi, who had spent years on the desk at the Associated Press and who um, wrote, a, uh, wrote a book called Wise Guy. And why, it was a brilliant book. It was a, based on uh, a, 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 a fringe organized crime figure, not a mafia guy, um, but a, uh, a fringe mob figure named Henry Hill. Um, and, and his association with other organized crime figures and mafia guys. Um, when Martin Scorsese decided to turn Goodfellas into a film, a motion picture, um, there was a television show, a television series called Wise Guy that was already out there. And so he couldn't have, they decided not to have a movie called Wise Guy when there's a television series out there. So they were looking for another name for the film. And the name they came up with was Goodfellas. Now, I've been investigating the mafia for almost 50 years. And I can tell you, I have never, ever heard. I've heard people refer to people as the Godfather, as, hey, Godfather. I've heard, I've heard mob guys refer to that on wiretaps. Uh, in person, I've heard people refer to that. Uh, but I've never heard anyone ever say he's a good fellow. I've never, I've never heard that before. I never heard that before. Uh, wise guy. Yeah. I've, I've heard wise guy a lot, but good fellow. I never heard, but they made it now. Now good is part of the language and mafia guys now use that language. Um, the movie, um, the Irishman, uh, which is another Scorsese film, um, I had a dinner with uh, Robert De Niro. I, I've hosted in here in Washington. I've hosted an author, a dinner for authors for the past 30, 3, 34 years. And we meet at the old Europe restaurant in, uh, over in Glover Park. And I'll get as many as 100, maybe 110 authors, published authors who will come to my dinners twice a year. And um, we, um, De Niro wanted, to meet some of the guys. And we had a, we, one of our authors had been doing some business with him. And so he invited him to the dinner and, and plus he wanted to see me because I'm an expert on the Hoffa case. And so uh, De Niro came to the dinner, could have been a nice, just the nicest guy in the world. He was, he was signing autographs and taking pictures with people. And he was, he was just one hell of a guy. He really was. Uh, but then it came down to the business and his, uh, our, our mutual friend, 
sat us down at the end. This is what this was all about, was to have this meeting between he and I. And I knew I didn't have much time with this guy. And I had a message I wanted to get across to him that he was getting conned by this movie he was planning to do about this, this, this lying, uh, self-admitted lying uh, hitman named Frank Sheeran, whom De Niro played in the film. Um, and so I was fairly harsh with, with De Niro and my language towards him. I probably talked to him the way he talks to people in the movies and um, he didn't appreciate it. But again, I said, listen, if I had more time, I'd take it, but you're getting conned here. You're a very fine actor, but you know goddamn thing about the mafia. And, um, and you're wrong about this, this case. And what concerns me is you're gonna put a lot of disinformation out there, which I'm gonna to have to go and spend a lot of time cleaning up. And uh, he took offense to it. And uh, <laughs> that was probably mild compared to some of the things we said to each other. And so uh, when I say that if I'm wrong about Hoffa's body understanding, De Niro will be one of the people who going to dance on my head, I'm sure. Um, so that's where we are. I have to tell you, though, um, when we were talking about connected people and things like that, uh, a few months ago, um, a connected guy, not a mafia guy, not an actual made member of the mafia, but a connected guy, a guy who's connected to these guys, called me. I've known this guy for a long time. He for whatever reason, respects my work. And he, um, and he cares about me personally. And he, um, he thinks I'm right about what I'm saying about Hoff. And he wanted to give me some advice on how to survive it. And among other things, he told me, don't spike the football and don't dance in the end zone. And so I have taken those uh, that, that advice to heart, um, because it's not, um, it's, it's not in my nature to, uh, I, I've had problems in the past, uh, with tough guys, teamsters, goon squads, things like that. I have never had direct trouble with mafia guys who wanted me dead. I've almost been killed before several times, but by tough guys, uh, teamster goons and things like that. Not by mafia guys. Mafia guys, if you're if you're targeted by the mafia, you got some real problems. And I've never had that. I, I survived a contract one time, and it was uh, it was not a mafia contract. It was a contract by some teamster some teamster guys who were uh, who I had caught uh, shaking down, uh, creating a goon squad and shaking down trucking companies in return for labor peace, and. Um, there was an angle for the Hoffa case on this thing, which is why I got interested in it. But uh, these guys, um, they threatened my dad and uh, they couldn't, they couldn't, they couldn't scare me away. And I have to tell you, I'm not, I'm not, I've never been in the military. I've never, I've never served. I've never been in law enforcement or anything. I'm just a grunt crime reporter. So I've never been trained to be brave. I've never been trained to, you know, to be fearless. I, what I've had to train myself is, is how to get into a, if I'm in a situation where I'm terrified and I have been, where I'm just not freezing up to the point where I can't function. That's the hardest thing is when you get real scared, if you, if you just freeze up and you just, you're paralyzed, you, you better get out of that real fast. And that's hard to get out of that because um, you could wind up getting hurt pretty bad. And so, um, 
So I, uh, I, uh, <laughs> I'm thinking back to these stories now after all of it. But my point is, is that I won't be spiking the football or uh, dancing in the end zone with regard to, to this situation. Well, Dan, I wanted to go, just go back to Robert De Niro, just to make a note sure. that he was in Godfather 2 and play Vito Corrion for our listeners. Right. So that yeah. movie came out in 1974. And, and Godfather Part 2. Right. And Which part two. a wonderful movie. And, and many people think that that may have even been better than um, Godfather Part 1, where it was more on point, where they were talking about Cuba, where they were talking about... Actually, there was supposed to be... The Godfather Part 3 um, was supposed to be a film, as I understand, as, as I've been told, was supposed to be a film about the mafia working with the CIA to kill Fidel Castro, which is based on a true story from the church committee during the mid seventies. And then how the, how the, the, the CIA mafia plots to kill Castro evolved into a mafia plot to kill John Kennedy as president of the United States in November, 1963. I was the first reporter in my book, The Hoffa Wars in 1978 to allege that Jimmy Hoffa Carlos Marcello, the mafia boss of New Orleans, and Santo Traficani, the mafia boss of Tampa, Florida, had arranged and executed the murder of the president in 1963. And then a year later, in July of 1975, excuse me, in July 1979, um, the House Select Committee on Assassinations, which was had been investigating the JFK murder and the Martin Luther King murders um, for the past year, uh, came out with their final report in which they concluded that Hoffa, Marcello, and Traficani had motive, means, and opportunity to kill the president. And the chief counsel of the committee, Robert Blaker, who's the world's expert on the mafia, he's a law professor at Notre Dame University, uh, he said, in no uncertain terms, this is exact quote, the mob did it, it's a historical fact. And so um, I remember there was a scene in The Godfather Part Two where uh, Tom Hagen, they were talking about killing Hyman Roth when he came back from Israel and they were going to kill him in the airport. And so there was a guy who Jack Ruby like came out of nowhere and, um, and, and shoots Hyman Roth at the airport while he's surrounded by federal law enforcement people and everything else. And then the, the shooter himself is killed. Um, what's interesting about that is that um, is that that was, you know, basically right out of, you know, the scene where Jack Ruby shot, shot leave Harvey Oswald. And Tom Hagen, when they were planning this, Tom Hagen, the consigliere of the Corleone family in The Godfather said, when Michael Corleone said that's where he wants Hyman Roth met at the airport, uh, Tom Hagen said, Michael, that's going to be like killing the president of the United States. He's going to be completely surrounded. And Corleone responds in, in very dramatic terms. He says, Tom, if there's one thing we've learned through history is you can kill anybody. Wow. Uh, that was, I think, I think that was uh, 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 Coppola's homage to uh, the fact that, you know, the mob had whacked the president, which I believe to this day is true.
We're now at the point of our conversation where we're going to go into our lightning round. And this, this includes four questions that we ask all our guests on this podcast. And I'm going to kick it off. Um, if you could travel back in time, where would you take yourself and why? Um, to me, the, 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 uh, the most tragic crime in American history is the murder of John Kennedy. And there's so many questions that revolve around it and everything else. I think if I could go back in time and actually examine what's going on, I'd stop here. I could stop it. I could, I could hit the pause button and look around and see what's here and here. I'd go back to Dealey Plaza in uh, Dallas, Texas in November, on November 22nd, 1963. That's where I'd go. And um, a lot of the films and series we look at are often based on um, literature or novels, whatever, like The Godfather. If you could be a fictional person um, or in a historical film or series, who would you be? Wow. Well, one of my all-time favorite movies is uh, Casablanca. And my favorite character in Casablanca, and perhaps my favorite character in all of motion picture history, is uh, the cockled leader of the, re the Nazi resistance, um, the anti-Nazi resistance, um, Victor Laszlo, uh, who was married to Ingrid, uh, Ingrid Bergman, who was having an affair with Humphrey Bogart. Uh, and um, my favorite scene in motion picture history is where Victor Laszlo, while the Nazis, a group of Nazis are singing some, some beer hall song, uh, Victor Laszlo goes up to the band and tells them to play La, uh, uh, La Marseille. La Marseillaise, the French national and anthem. I, uh, that scene, I could watch that scene over where he rallies the entire uh, the entire place uh, against the Nazis. And uh, so if, if I could be a character, I would be uh, of choice. A fictional character would be Victor Lazo because of his courage and because of his leadership. Love that scene in that film. Uh, Martin Luther King said, um, he talked about the importance of living a committed life. And that influenced me from the beginning. Um, you know, I think it's important for us to live committed lives. And I think that could be any more, more and more important than it is right now, where there is this, this, this monumental battle going on between authoritarianism uh, and, and democracy. And these are the moments where we need Victor Laszlo's to be rising up and, and, and making their stance against authoritarianism. So if you could put three items into a time cap, so to represent the times you've lived through, what would those three items be? Um, well, my book, Confessions of a Guerrilla Writer, because that's my story. That is my story. And that's the story behind all my books. Um, uh, my girlfriend of uh, 34 years, uh, Mimi, gave me a ring. I think I'd put that in there. And then my mom and dad gave me this religious icon. I'm, I'm um, Eastern Orthodox. 
um, Romanian Orthodox. There's Romanian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Lebanese, Ukrainian Orthodox, which we're hearing a lot about right now. And um, the, the, my mom and dad gave me this religious icon, which I've always kept. And I think I'd probably put that in it. So uh, my book, my memoir, Mimi's Ring, and uh, my, the, the icon my mom and dad gave me. And our last question in the lightning round is, do you see historical films like The Godfather as a window to the past or a mirror of the present? Wow, that's an interesting question. I'm not a deep thinker, <laughs> but I am relentless. And so um, I, to me, I like films that inspire. That's what I like. I like films that inspire. I like films, believe it or not, my favorite films are movies about astronauts. You know, The Right Stuff, Apollo 13, Hidden Figures. Um, his, those are historical dramas too. Historical dramas, <laughs> yeah. But they're they're true. They're they're, they're true stories that are yes. so well told. Yes. And which are so inspiring. And um, um, the the woman who wrote Hidden Figures and her husband uh, come to my author's dinner from time to time. I love that movie, and um, because it shows how people um, overcome and. And, and their greatness comes through even when they're not being treated fairly uh, and where they find their own dignity and demand it and get it. I mean, that's, that's the beauty of that film. But it's also about astronauts. So uh, to me, these <laughs> astronauts, I can't even imagine, you know, these guys going up in these. I, I, I just can't imagine the courage it would take for these guys to do that. I mean, just pure guts. I, I, the movie First Man about Neil Armstrong uh, being the first man on the moon. What what guts he and and uh, and and um, I, I, I should know that I, I, I'm sorry I'm having a senior moment here. His uh, Buzz Aldrin uh, that went when they went up to, on, on Apollo 11. What guts these guys had. What guts. I mean, just pure raw courage. And there's nothing I respect more than uh, courage and. Um, and uh, under fire. Well, I think you've also given us an idea for future episodes to look at the astronaut films and space films about yes. space I, I love them. science. I love, so I love you gave us an idea. But thank you, Dan. Thank you so much, Dan, for taking time to talk Always with a us pleasure. about your work, about The Godfather and what's coming up next. So I'm going to turn it over to Tequina for last words, for our last words and sign off. Okay, well, to our listeners, thank you for joining this podcast. You can look for Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters on Instagram and Facebook and visit our webpage at michonbostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters for more information and additional resources related to this conversation. Join us again, like and share the historical drama with the Boston Sisters podcast on your social media. This is Michelle Boston. And this is Tequina Boston. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters, a podcast about historical films and series dramas. Visit our webpage at michonnebostongroup.com backslash Boston Sisters. Tell us what historical dramas you're watching 
Who knows, we may do a show about it. Sign up for our newsletter, subscribe to the podcast, and share it with the people you know who geek out on historical drama. Historical Drama with the Boston Sisters is brought to you by the Michonne Boston Group. The views and opinions expressed on historical drama with the Boston Sisters are those of the speakers and do not represent the positions or views of the Michonne Boston Group, its clients, or affiliates. This is Michonne Boston. And Tequina Boston. Thank you for listening.